creation and practice. Um, and a potential disconnect between what obstetricians think is being administered to the patient and what anaesthetists are actually using um, for the management of uterine tone at cesarean delivery. Welcome to episode 58 of the Ops and Guy Quick Care Podcast. Hi everyone, welcome back to the podcast. Um, today I have uh, someone who's been on the podcast before, um, uh, Nola McDonnell, who's um, spoken to us previously on, um, what, what was the topic, uh, amniotic fluid embolism? Uh, amniotic fluid embolism, I think we've done some stuff on vasopressors as well from memory. Uh, and we definitely did something on labour analgesia. Um, today, Nolan's kindly agreed to come back on the podcast and just uh, talk to us about um, a really relevant subject uh, in obstetrics, which is the uh, international consensus statement on the use of utero, uterotonic agents during cesarean section, which um, he has been involved in. Um, so do you want to tell us, uh, Nolan, how did, how did you get involved in this project? Cool. Thanks, Roger, and uh, thanks for having me back. Um, so this paper that we're referring to was recently published in Anesthesia um, and interestingly has become um, on the Outmetrics one of the most highly ranked papers within a very short space of time, which I think shows the, the need for um, sensible guidelines on this pivotal area in obstetric anesthesia. Uh, in terms of how I came to be involved in this actual consensus statement, um, it's really that usual story of one thing leading into other things, essentially. And so uh, we originally published some work on vasopressors on metaraminol in the journal Anesthesia, uh, which then led me to be involved with uh, an authoring group on a consensus statement on vasopressor management at cesarean delivery. At the end of that process, uh, I actually floated the idea of this consensus statement, um, primarily because it's a subject that I've done a lot of teaching on and a lot of presentations on. Um, and realised there was a need for uh, for really some anaesthetic-led guidelines on this for international use. That's good. Now, I don't think we have actually done a podcast on vasopressors, so we definitely should, though. That should be now one that we should mentioned do. It. Yeah. <laughs> um, all right. And so do you want to tell us about the pros and cons, uh, et cetera, and the limitations of, of the consensus statement before you, uh, before we sort of go through what's, in, what's written in, inside this document? Uh, yeah, so I think probably the advantages of the, the consensus statement is that it's pragmatic. Um, it is multidisciplinary, so obviously primarily anaesthetic-led, but we've also got obstetrician involvement in the consensus statement. Um, but we've also had the involvement of some of the key researchers um, in this particular field internationally, yep. particularly Jose Carvalho um, from Canada, who's done a lot of work on particularly carbatosin at cesarean delivery. Uh, on top of that, it was designed as an international consensus statement, so essentially applicable to uh, high and low uh, income settings, essentially. That's great. And um, are there any limitations? Uh, or we'll probably yeah, get into so that later I guess, on. I, I guess the key limitations are always that we're dealing, particularly in obstetric anesthesia, with areas that can be difficult to formulate evidence for. Um, yep. And so... A lot of the guidelines that we have are based on um, often a fit and healthy population, often undergoing elective surgery, uh, whereas that's not always the case with what we're dealing with in obstetric anesthesia. Okay, that's good. And uh, so I've written down uh, here that um, just like you mentioned, there, there's some different um, populations or groups that you sort of tried to address in this statement. 
uh, and I've written down anyway that from my read through the elective caesarean patient, the non-elective caesarean, and then the resource poor setting. You sort of tried to address all these three areas. Yeah. Shall we go? Um, do, yeah, so do I think the, the go into that, or talk about the pharmacology. Let's yeah, let's well, talk so about that first. Yeah. Yeah. So I think the one of the key things to separate out in the first instance is your oxytocin naive population, which yep. we often class as our essentially our elective caesarean population, versus that uh, labouring population or population that have been exposed to higher plasma oxytocin levels. Yep. And that's primarily because of the receptor activity that happens uh, in the uterus once it's exposed to oxytocin, essentially. So um, that's one of the key implications implications (laughs) for clinical practices, really differentiating those two patient populations. Where things start to get a little bit grey is where you've got women, for instance, having an elective caesarean delivery who we think are at higher risk of uterine adony. Um, and in those situations, it may be more appropriate to follow uh, the alternative pathway, essentially, for as though that woman has actually been exposed to oxytocin previously. So we use uh, essentially higher doses. Yeah, okay. So that would sort of be someone having quadruplets or... A, yeah, so know, potentially twins, sort of someone with polyhydramnia, someone who's had a, yeah. a history of a prior significant PPH. Okay, good. Uh, all right, so I think one of the key things that, uh, that we probably should talk about on this uh, podcast is the sort of a deep dive into the pharmacology of oxytocin because that's obviously the key main sort of uh, uterotonic drug and 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 some of the other uterotonic drugs work in the, on those receptors. Yeah. Do you want to sort of uh, guide us through the basics that we that you, of pharmacological um, knowledge that we need to know? Yeah, well, I guess um, in many ways there's not I guess in many ways there's not a huge amount that we actually need to know about oxytocin per se. Um, probably some of the key things that we need to know are the differences between half-lives of oxytocin versus carbitocin, yep. which is an oxytocin analogue which is being uh, increasingly used internationally, um, depending on the country and the institution that you're working in. Um, I think one of the key things that's important to the understanding of particularly the doses that we use um, is what happens to the oxytocin receptors uh, in the uterus when they have prior exposure to oxytocin, essentially. Uh, and the implication of that is that essentially in your oxytocin-naive uh, woman, you need much lower doses of oxytocin to initiate and then maintain uterine contractions as opposed to a woman who has either had uh, exogenous or endogenous exposure to oxytocin, essentially, um, where they need higher doses of oxytocin um, but also if those higher doses are not effective, using even higher doses is likely to be ineffective and you need to switch to an agent that works via a different pharmacological method. Okay. Um, so what happens to the receptors over time? Let's say, for example, you've got someone in labour ward who's getting um, some oxytocin to augment their labour, which is fairly common in, in most developed countries. And then say, that for example, you're on, uh, you're on the, an infusion like that for 10 hours. What's basically happening? Um, so essentially you get desensitisation of those oxytocin receptors. Um, now, the exact mechanism of that desensitisation isn't exactly clear. Um, there's some thought that essentially those oxytocin receptors internalise and are no longer uh, available to be stimulated, basically. But there's a variety of theories as to what potentially happens to those oxytocin receptors. But essentially you can think of it as desensitisation to that oxytocin. Okay. <clears throat> 
Okay, good. Um, do you want to talk about carbitocin? Yeah, so look, that. carbitocin um, is a drug which has been around for a considerable period of time. It's an oxytocin analogue, um, and essentially its key difference to oxytocin, um, certainly there's a potency difference between the two drugs, um, which isn't as relevant from a clinical practice perspective, uh, but the key difference is because of its altered molecular structure, it has a significantly prolonged half-life. So compared to oxytocin, which has a half-life of around about three to four minutes, uh, carbitocin has a half-life of approximately 40 minutes. Okay. Um, Realising that that's a half-life, so its actual clinical effects are potentially longer than that. Um, and in addition to that, carbitocin also is a lipophilic agent um, and which in relation to its tissue, gi- tissue distribution, actually gives it a, an even more prolonged half-life than what you see from a plasma point of view. Um, and can I just ask, how, so has there been some research comparing, or what is the sort of summary of the literature comparing um, oxytocin infusions and carbitocin? Where's that at? I know that's been evolving over time, and I'm, uh, it's been changing. Yeah, so look, um, first and foremost, no conflicts of interest to declare in this particular area yep. in relation to oxytocin versus carbitocin. The evidence at this point in time would suggest that carbitocin is superior to oxytocin from a postpartum hemorrhage point of view, prevention point of view at cesarean delivery. Um, so there's been models that have been done in both the UK and in Malaysian settings, which have essentially showed that Uh, compared to oxytocin, you get a significant reduction in the incidence of postpartum hemorrhage at cesarean delivery. Um, And when I say significant, uh, we're talking uh, data that's sort of greater than 90% probability of being associated with a lower incidence of postpartum hemorrhage, essentially. Um, So there's good evidence to suggest that carbitocin is potentially a better drug than oxytocin um, at cesarean delivery. But there's also a number of caveats in terms of understanding some of the differences in terms of the pharmacology between the two drugs, how you go about using them, uh, the appropriate doses, and the potential for side effects with it. Okay, and uh, so uh, just, just uh, a little uh, disclaimer. So we're going to, uh, once we've gone through the pharmacology, go back and just sort of actually go over what are your, your recommendations for each of those three groups that we mentioned before. So, yeah. so hopefully we'll sort of go into a bit more detail there. Yeah. Uh, and then the next class is uh, the ergots, ergometrin, or I think in, uh, what's it called in North America? Um, so essentially we, we move to second-line agents yep. um, in this setting, and that's where um, I guess there's very minimal evidence to recommend one second-line agent over another second-line agent. Um, it really depends on what you've got available to you yep. um, and the potential side effect profile of the agent that you're using compared to a patient's particular comorbidities. For instance, if you've got somebody with severe preeclampsia who's hypertensive, then using an ergot alkaloid uh, might be relatively contraindicated in that setting and you might want to switch to uh, one of your prostaglandin F2-alpha agents. Yep, sounds good. Um, so it's, it's difficult to provide uh, really good advice in terms of second-line agents. Uh, our overall recommendation is, obviously, if you're first-line agent, um, is failing, then early changing to a second-line agent is recommended. So moving to an agent that works through a, a separate pathway, basically, to oxytocin. Okay. What are the pharmacological uh, sort of, I guess, um, specific pharmacological things that we need to know about ergots to help us, you know, individualise our decision-making? We've already met, you already mentioned preeclampsia, so what are the, um, 
the main the main yeah, so I think, I remember. I think probably some of the key things with the ergot alkaloids is, um, and, and really most of these second line agents is that they've all got significant side effects. Yeah. Um, and I think the ergot alkaloids, uh, it's one of those drugs that we have to be very careful in terms of how we administer the drug. Um, so particularly intravenously, if you read the product inserts for the ergot alkaloids. Uh, intravenous use should only be reserved for severe life-threatening circumstances. Yep. Um, I certainly know of obstetricians that I've worked with um, that have only ever used it intravenously, basically, at cesarean delivery. Um, I guess the older that I've got, the more conservative that I've got in terms of being very careful with uh, administering intravenously and only using it very slowly intravenously if I do use it in that circumstance. Um, so I guess that's the first thing to take into account is the route of administration and being very careful with intravenous versus intramuscular yep, administration. I, I would for the concur heartily with that. Ergot alkaloids. Um, and then in terms of other side effects, um, more common, slightly annoying things, nausea and vomiting, um, headaches and abdominal pain. Um, and then certainly we talked about hypertension but also being concerned about coronary artery spasm essentially yeah. with the ergot alkaloids. Um, so... In terms of dosing, um, certainly in Australia, um, our product inserts recommend a 200 microgram intramuscular dose of ergot, uh, of ergometrin. Um, other settings uh, utilise up to 250 micrograms. Certainly in the UK, uh, it's licensed up to 500 micrograms as an intramuscular dose. Um, so we, I know that we get our ampules are at 500 mics, so, so you usually just give half of that? Uh, normally I would use half intramuscularly. Yeah. And would you ever give a, uh, the other half if, the, if the down the line there hasn't been a good response? Um, not generally. Uh, I have very rarely been in that situation where I'd needed to give additional ergometrin when I've used an intramuscularly. Um, if that's failed, then I would turn to a third-line agent essentially. Okay. Um, which in our setting would be uh, carboprost, basically a prostaglandin F2 alpha analog. Yep. And just on your comments about uh, intravenous administration of ergometrin, I think the longer you've been around, the more likely you are to have seen some uh, um, uh, severe adverse cardiovascular events, and definitely that's definitely the case. We've seen a few mm. here, you know, with presumed possible coronary vasospasm and pretty severe hi- hypertensive crises. Yeah. I think it's important to remember with that with all the uterotonic agents, so oxytocin and carbitocin as well, you can get significant uh, coronary vascular changes associated with them. So they're all drugs, and that's, again, one of the take-home messages we, we talk about specifically in our paper about uh, caution with any patients with um, underlying cardiac disease, essentially. Yep. Um, and we've got, and we can talk to that when we come to some of the recommendations, but how we go about administering oxytocin to women with cardiac disease, essentially. Yeah, that's, that's a, a really important point. Mm. Um, so tell us about the prostaglandins that are available and what are the pharmacological sort of important points? Yeah, so prostaglandin F2-alpha, essentially, it gets a little bit confusing because we have, um, sort of internationally, there's been predominantly two major preparations available. One which has been intramyometrial, and one which has been intramuscular. Um, and it's confusing because uh, depending on which country you work in and the licensing, you may have access to one product which is administered by the surgeon directly into the uh, myometrium, or you've got a product which is primarily given by the anaesthetist in the operating theatre and given intramuscularly. Um, but essentially both agents, so carboprost, uh, 
uh, and Dynaprost, a, both prostaglandin F2 alpha analogues. Um, so they work on a, a different pathway to oxytocin receptors in that regard. Um, they're a second or third line agent. Um, and we tend to reserve them more, I guess, in our setting um, where we've got access to ergometrin primarily as a third line agent. Uh, and often that's because the side effects from it are quite significant. Um, it's not a particularly pleasant drug for patients to, to have administered to them. Uh, you get significant nausea, you can get fevers. Um, diarrhea is quite uh, common and also quite unpleasant, particularly for the recovery room staff. Um, but then you've also got some other significant uh, issues such as bronchospasm, which can occur. Yeah. <clears throat> okay. Uh, and so this is just some throw that out there. I'm not sure if you've got it on this. So if someone's got a history of asthma, it's a, it's a comorbidity that is incredibly common. Uh, is it a... Uh, Absolutely contraindicated, or is it a relative? Look, I think I think what, most no of these most of these drugs would be a relative contraindication. Yep. Essentially, um, I think most of us are fortunate that we're we're not in those situations very frequently. Um, but I always think through what would I do if I'm in that particular situation where I've got uterine agony, which is not responsive to our traditional uterotonics plus ergometrin. Um, and it would be a risk-benefit analysis. I know I can potentially treat the bronchospasm uh, with other agents, essentially. So it's really going to be a risk-benefit analysis in those yeah. certain circumstances. Right. I guess remembering that not all of our management of uterine tone needs to be pharmacological in nature. So we've got surgical interventions such as things like a B-Lynch suture, and we've also got interventional radiology, uh, which can help in these situations as well. Yeah, and entry uterine balloons, that sort of thing. Yeah. 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 So... Uh, I guess you, it'd be, it's pretty unpleasant if you're in a situation with severe uterine atony where you, you either have already given ergometrin or you're not allowed to for a contraindication and then they also have asthma. Yeah. Uh, and finally, um, so misoprostol, is that, what's, what's the evidence for that? Is that used in any, any, any manner? Yeah, well, look, interestingly, I think, um, I know certainly locally misoprostol has gone essentially completely out of favour. Um, so certainly within... This institution here at King Edward, we very, very rarely now use misoprostol in the perioperative setting for uterine tone management. Um, there is some evidence um, to still support the use of misoprostol, um, but again, the routine use of misoprostol uh, with the way that it works is associated with other significant side effects. So again, it's not particularly pleasant from a patient's point of view. It can cause an increase in temperature, can cause nausea as well. Um, so certainly... Uh, in our situation, it's not something that we use commonly, but depending on the resources that you've got available for you, it might be an agent which you do turn to as a second-line agent more commonly. And what are the routes that can be given? So I've seen it being given uh, rectally, but also sublingually. And yeah, so it can be given ways. transvaginally, sublingually, um, as well as rectally. Yeah. Um, so you can give it through all of those routes, essentially. Um, okay, so... I think we've gone through, uh, is there any other pharmacological points that you think we should cover? Uh, I think that's the that's probably the key the key issues. I think the most the, the rest of it will probably tease out as we start to talk about the recommendations that we've made in terms of dosing and that. Okay, do you want to, uh, so we just jump right in and let's go to the, mo uh, the most sort of um, well-studied group, which is um, probably uh, the elective caesarean patients or the um, oxytocin-naive ones. Yeah. yeah. So I think probably the the key thing to come out of it our out of our consensus statement, and it was certainly 
I think this is one of the reasons that this our paper has been particularly topical is that the doses that we recommend in our consensus statement are different to what a lot of obstetricians are actually used to using at cesarean delivery. Um, yet they're supported by the evidence that have been done in dose finding studies in the in yep. these patient populations essentially. Um, one of the reasons that we did this consensus statement in the first place is that there's a number of surveys which have been done showing a very wide variation in practice um, and a potential disconnect between what obstetricians think is being administered to the patient and what anaesthetists are actually using um, for the management of uterine tone at caesarean delivery. Uh, so essentially in terms of our recommendations, if you're using oxytocin as your first-line uterotonic agent, we recommend a bolus plus an infusion, essentially. Yep. And our bolus dose, we recommend a one-unit bolus, one international unit bolus of oxytocin, administered slowly intravenously. Um, if that uh, fails to initiate uterine tone, you may uh, repeat that bolus, um, essentially a second time. Um, but we also recommend that uh, there is an infusion commenced of oxytocin as well. So we do recommend a, uh, a single one-unit bolus. Um, that can be repeated uh, after 30 seconds, and in that circumstance, uh, sorry, that can be repeated after two minutes, and in that circumstance we recommend a three-unit bolus, um, but in all situations essentially we recommend a titrated infusion be commenced as well. Okay, and what, what is the infusion uh, recommendations, you know, dosing so the, concentration? So the infusion rate... Um, and again, this is where there's great variation in practice globally. Um, so certain settings, uh, for instance, in the UK, will put 30 to 40 units into a 500 mil bag yep. um, and just open that up and run it through essentially. So kind of a, a an infusion, not through a volumetric pump, but um, manually titrated. We recommend 2.5 to 7.5 international units per hour of oxytocin in the elective caesarean population okay sounds good and um and any anything else so uh, what happens so I think, if these i think work? some of the uh, i think well i think probably one of the interesting points from um from the literature on this particular uh, patient population is that that one unit bolus is way over what the potential ed90 actually is in the elective caesarean population so there's been a number of studies which have been done which have shown that you need really less than one unit of oxytocin to initiate uterine contraction at elective caesarean delivery. And in some circumstances, and this is certainly what we recommend with your unwell cardiac women, you don't even need the bolus. You can just start them on an oxytocin infusion. Yeah, that's right. Um, and that's one of the key take-home messages, again, from our paper, is that your cardiovascular side effects are related to the dose of the agent that you're using, whether that be carbitocin or oxytocin, uh, and the speed that you administer it. Um, so if you give your bolus slowly, essentially you'll dramatically decrease your cardiovascular side effects, um, which is yeah. primarily hypotension and tachycardia. Yeah, and I think um, it's, maybe it's important to delve into the, the details of how severe some of these cardiovascular changes can be, because a lot of people don't appreciate that... Um, this can cause some really serious problems in patients, and even ones without cardiac disease. If you give uh, five or ten units intravenously, uh, you can really cause some severe hypotension, can't you? I mean, I've seen just giving one or two units when I've we've had patients with arterial lines in for uh, for uh, because they have certain comorbidities, 
how profound the drop in blood pressure is, even with a small doses like that. Yeah. Uh, and yeah. I, th- I guess that's why what um, perhaps it's important our obstetric colleagues and all those uh, other you know, people who are, who are used to the old-fashioned uh, large doses need to be aware yeah. of. It, it brings up a number of, uh, I think, important points in that it's a drug that we use which the majority of times is going to be okay because the patient has relatively good underlying cardiac reserve. But we have to remember that women at uh, in their third trimester of pregnancy are often functioning at the very limit of their cardiovascular reserve because of the cardiovascular changes. And then when you associate that with labour uh, and acute volume changes that might occur at cesarean delivery, it does set up the situation for women that uh, might be uh, closer to the limits, basically, of their cardiovascular reserve of running into real problems when we administer uh, drugs such as uterotonics, which have significant um, effects on the uh, on the circulation. So I think, um, I guess, as we talked about, the speed of administration uh, and the dose that we use is important. So, for instance, there's a very nice study that when you look at a five international unit dose of oxytocin, if you give it as a bolus, uh, you get a roughly 27 millimetre decrease uh, in blood pressure associated with that and mean arterial pressure. Whereas if you give it as a slow intravenous infusion over five minutes, you get a five millimetre reduction yeah. in blood pressure. So a significant change. Um, and again, if you're looking at heart rate, uh, you get uh, a heart rate change of about 17 beats per minute. Uh, when you're giving it as a bolus versus about 10 beats per minute when you're giving it as a slow intravenous infusion. Okay. Um, so for all of our intravenously administered agents, uh, we certainly recommend that any boluses should be administered slowly. Yep. Um, so for both carbatosin and oxytocin, whenever you're bolusing, it should be given very slowly. Okay, and this is not a theoretical thing either, is it? Because there are well-documented case no. reports, in fact, case series of women actually dying from, yeah. so there's from a number cardiovascular of, collapse following these There's a number of maternal boluses. deaths associated with bolus administration of oxytocin, essentially. Yeah, so this is a pretty serious issue, and so yeah. um, it's good to, to think seriously about, or carefully about how you're going to administer these drugs. Yeah, and so look, personally, for me, I, I tend to give most of my bolus medications over at least 30 seconds, um, and often um, it's difficult to administer over 30 seconds as a, as a slow IV bolus in the operating theatre environment that we work in. Um, so I tend to just slowly titrate mill by mill, basically, as we uh, over that 30-second period. Um, everybody's got their own sorts of ways of administering it slowly. Um, there's a very nice way that you can use your infusion pump um, that you have set up to administer your, your oxytocin infusion to essentially administer that bolus slowly as well and do things that way, um, which is a very nice way to get around things as well. Um, but I think it's really important that we uh, we slow down that speed of administration with our uh, with our uterotonics. Okay, that's good. Um, that's all right. Do you want to tell us about carbatosin in the elective uh, caesarean or oxytocin-naive population? Yeah, so uh, similar to what we've found with oxytocin, uh, and that is in that uh, oxytocin-naive population that you can get away with very low doses of oxytocin to initiate and then maintain uterine, uterine contraction. Similar situation with carbatocin, and that the recommend dose, recommended dose is 100 micrograms, um, but the ED90 is probably less than 20 micrograms. Now, what we don't have good information on at this point in time is if we use a drug which is, is lower in terms of that ED90, so if we are using a very small dose of carbatocin, 
um, does that actually affect its half-life and any other issues further down the track, basically. Mm, yeah. So our recommendation still in our consensus statement is that for elective caesarean deliveries, um, our recommended dose is 100 micrograms, um, but you may be able to consider lower doses in selected circumstances. Um, one thing that is important with carbitocin, and it becomes, I guess, more important when we start to talk about the non-elective setting, is that uh, there is a, an increased incidence of ST segment changes associated with higher doses um, of carbitocin. So at this point in time, we can't recommend more than 100 microgram doses of carbitocin. Okay, and it's, it's probably highly likely that once you've given 100 micrograms, you've sort of saturated those receptors anyway, is that right? Or uh, well, or unfortunately, the ED90 is, is probably up around the 120 to 140 microgram range for carbitocin. Okay. Um, so you may be under-treating a certain percentage of the population. But because of those potential for cardiovascular side effects, we can't recommend using a higher dose in that non-elective setting. Okay, so I've certainly you know, had situations where I've used carbitocin and then the uh, obstetrician has um, sort of told me maybe 15, 20 minutes after delivery, oh, you're not happy, can I start an oxytocin infusion? Any comments about that? Um, that's a, a very, very <laughs> contentious area. Yeah, and it's um, difficult, isn't it? I mean, I personally, the uh, patient was fine, no high, no tachycardia, no hypertension. Uh, look, yeah, it's I, difficult to know, I, I it? will be honest and just state that I sit on the fence on this yeah. one. Um, Jose Carvalho uh, from Toronto is the world expert in this setting. He's on our consensus paper and he quite firmly states that you should not be using the two together. Um, however, pragmatically, I do see it being done. Um, I, I guess I don't see it as potentially causing significant harm. Um, whether it's causing any benefit at that point in time, it's hard to know. Um, so it's not something I'm particularly yeah. passionate about in terms of saying that we, we should or should not be doing it. Um, it's just a very contentious issue and we don't really have good evidence to guide us one way or the other. Yep. Um, just theoretically, it's probably not going to be making any difference essentially. Yeah. Okay, good. Um, do you want to? Are you going to go through the second line drugs, or do you think that, that we'll be discussing that in detail in the next section? Yeah, well, um, I, I think we can probably talk about non-elective cesarean deliveries essentially. So yeah, the yep. uh, women who have had prior exposure to, to yeah, oxytocin. Let's just skip ahead to that because I think we'll be talking about the second line drugs in that in that section, won't we? Yeah. So look, in terms of um, the essentially the the intrapartum cesarean sort of setting that we have, the key message is essentially that we switch to a higher dose of oxytocin. Um, so in that situation, we recommend a three-unit um, slow intravenous bolus of oxytocin uh, with a higher oxytocin infusion rate, um, so 7.5 to 15 international units per hour in that setting. Um, and so that data is based on a number of studies which have shown that the ED90 is just below three international units, essentially, in that intrapartum caesarean population. And that intrapartum caesarean uh, dosing regimen may be appropriate, as we discussed, for those women that we consider at higher risk of postpartum hemorrhage as well. Um, so that polyhydramnias, multiple pregnancy sort of situation, having even though they might be having an elective caesarean delivery. Yep, that seems sensible. Um, any other comments about... Uh, do we? That we didn't sort of sort of talked about the pharmacology of those second line drugs, and uh, you've already said um, the choice is sort of really to be individualised depending on their comorbidities. Um, I think we've gone through the 
the dosing of um, the ergots, um, or the ergometrin or ergonavine as it's called in North America. Uh, do you want to... Did we talk about the dosing of the F2 alpha preparations? I know there is there is definitely I have seen when we changed from dinoprost to carboprost there was a confusion and some uh, some drug errors made yeah. during during that period of time. I, I think one one thing that I'm always slightly cautious of is that with these drugs there's slightly different preparations available worldwide. Yeah, um, and that I would very much recommend to listeners that they look at what they have available locally and what the dosing recommendations for that product are in terms of their licensing for their local availability of the product that they have. Um, so, for instance, we've got very clear King Edward guidelines in terms of what we use and the doses we use with the products that we have available. Um, but I would recommend that depending on the geographical location of the listeners that they look at, the products that they've got available and what the recommend dosing is for those particular products. Because yep. there is some slight variations in the various products which are available. Um, which might influence the doses which are actually used. Yeah, that's that's really important. And I think uh, if I remember rightly, some of the drug errors that we that I have uh, been made aware of over the years did involve practitioners coming from other countries, yeah. uh, you know, for fellowships and things like that, and then getting confused when they came here and the the, the product was different and yeah. realizing there's a difference. So and look, we, so we, that is really important. We we just point. saw that even writing the paper. Basically, those of us working in certain environments. We're even asking what are these particular drugs that yeah. the other authors were actually talking about because we've never had access to them. Um, I think just given that we're talking about second-line drugs, but it shouldn't really be a second-line drug in the situation that we're talking about, um, is just to remember that the other interventions that we could be thinking about. So we talked about interventional radiology and surgical interventions, um, but also the potential role of tranexamic acid in these situations as well. Yep. Um, is an important one to be considering in, in all cases of postpartum hemorrhage, essentially. So um, you know, if you're thinking about needing to move to a second-line agent because of uterine tone and blood loss, you should be thinking about using tranexamic acid in these situations as well. Yep, that's a good point. So obviously, uh, and a lot of bleeding is multifactorial, isn't it? Yep. So s- especially in the non-elective caesarean se- uh, setting, it's not always just one thing. It's, a, it's often a combination of lots yeah. of things, so you've got to keep so your we, mind... We talk about the four Ts, but... And while uterine tone is the most common, the contribution from the various other uh, potential pathways and things, it is often multifactorial, basically. Yeah, that's right. Um, So certainly um, don't forget about using antifibrinolytics and using tranexamic acid. Uh, There's good evidence out there uh, which shows that tranexamic acid is firstly efficacious in terms of reduction of blood loss, but also safe. Um, And the women trial is was probably the the best example showing the safety of that drug um, in terms of the follow-up that was done with it and the the lack of an increase in adverse outcomes associated with the use of tranexamic acid. Um, All right. Do you want to talk to us a a little bit about... I think the guideline has put together some recommendations or uh, something for those who work in resource-poor settings. Um, what sort of considerations uh, have you? Uh, does, it, does it talk about? Um, so we have kept the resource poor settings or the resource limited settings um, relatively brief in the paper. I think one of the one of the interesting issues that I think was more more of an issue until recent times was the heat stability of the oxytocin and carbitocin preparations. Yes. Now certainly the agents that we've got now got available to us in Australia are heat-stable, um, so they don't require any refrigeration, essentially. 
Um, so that's certainly something which is useful in a resource-limited setting where you might not have access to refrigeration um, for these particular agents, but it is something to keep in mind. Um, we do talk about potentially the intramuscular route of administration if intravenous access is not available. Um, so while we would recommend the intravenous route of administration, there are dosing recommendations for both oxytocin uh, and ergometrin uh, to be used in an intramuscular setting, basically, where you might not have intravenous access. Okay. Um, uh, I'm struggling to think that in, uh, if someone's having a caesarean, they usually would have intravenous access, but I guess in some really, s- even in a, develop- even in a resource-poor setting, but... I guess there are times when that might not be the case, either yeah. either after they've left the theatre complex or perhaps in some really basic situations where yeah, intramuscular yeah. ketamine or something like that is Yeah, so you, I could imagine some situations where it might have just been intramuscular ketamine, you yeah. might not have access to intravenous fluids. Um, yep. Yeah, and I think um, if, we're, if we're moving through the actual paper itself, um, one of the things we do touch on is the safety in terms of administration of these uterotonic agents. Um, so if you administer one of these uterotonic agents before that baby has been delivered um, and some of the doses that we recommend within this paper you could cause significant uh, fetal compromise essentially Um, so it's one of our last recommendations in terms of the consensus statement but a very clear recommendation that we make uh, is that practitioners have strategies in place to limit drug errors um, yes, very So certainly in our institution we don't allow the drawing up of any uterotonic agent prior to delivery of the baby. Um, and that's just a safety protocol that we have in place uh, to avoid that inadvertent administration of that uterotonic agent. Um, and even though it might be a 1 in 10,000, 1 in 100,000 event, when, for instance, you're an institution such as ourselves doing a couple of thousand caesarean deliveries a year, it is a sort of adverse event that if you uh, if you allow that drug to be drawn up prior to delivery, that will potentially happen. Um, and so that's why we mandate that we don't allow any of this to be drawn up prior to delivery of the baby. Okay, thanks, Norman. I think that is actually a very thorough uh, discussion of what is a very important topic. Um, uh, is there any? Have you got any final comments about future research? And maybe someone out there is listening is uh, enthusiastic. Uh, what sort of future research do you think we need in this area or uh, any final comments about um, you know, what's missing, what the future holds? Well, I think this is, it's, a, it's an area which is a very difficult area to research in. Um, so I think I just want to keep that in the back of everybody's mind because it can be very difficult to get uh, objective assessments of uterine tone and also objective assessments of blood loss in the operating theatre. Um, And I think as we improve our ability to actually appropriately assess uterine tone and assess blood loss, um, then the research that we're able to do with appropriate use of uterotonic agents is going to be so much better than what we've got available at the moment. Okay, thank you for your time, Nolan. Thanks, Roger. And looking forward to getting you back for the talk on vasopressors. Thank you. (laughs)